So have you ever, have you ever seen God? I mean, literally, like not in a sunset or in the Bible, but I mean, literally, have you, have you laid eyes on him? Have you seen Jesus, the risen Lord? Have you seen him? Some people today claim that they have. Charismatic leader Roberts Learden tells how in 1973, he was given a tour of heaven when he was eight years old. He was caught up to heaven. Jesus was his personal tour guide. Showed him all the mansions, you know, waiting all of us. And they even splashed around and had a water fight in the river of life. Jesus became his friend that day. Roberts supposedly had another encounter with Jesus at age 11. One day he was watching Laverne and Shirley on TV, and and Jesus walked through the front door. He sat down on the couch beside him. Everything turned off. He could only hear Jesus. He could only see his glory. Jesus then gave him a message about being successful in life, got up, and walked out. Everything turned back on, and Roberts resumed watching Laverne and Shirley. Another amusing example from someone who claims to have seen God is told by John MacArthur. He relates a conversation he had with a well-known charismatic pastor who told him, quote, When I'm shaving in the mornings, Jesus comes into the bathroom and puts his arm around me, and we talk. End quote. He gets these personal visits from Jesus all the time. So what do you think about these stories? Do you think these people really encountered God? Or do these stories come from delusion, maybe even deception? Just about every year now, some new book comes out about some person or some kid who went to heaven, saw God, saw Jesus. How do you know if they're true? I'll tell you one mark of inauthenticity that most of these stories come with. There's no real impact. These people claim to see God, yet afterward, they're not changed. For example, Roberts, he had this chat with Jesus, and then what did he do next? He went back to watching Laverne and Shirley. The other guy, he had a, had a chat with Jesus. What did he do next? He went back to shaving. You see how ridiculous that is? You don't encounter the glorified Lord so flippantly. No one encounters God and is not changed and blown away. You could not go back to shaving. There's no such thing as a casual encounter with God's glory. Every time we see in Scripture someone encountering the glory of God, what happens? They collapse in fear and terror. They're so struck by the majesty of God, they think they're going to die. Take the Apostle John, for example. He actually did see heaven, and he tells about it in the book of Revelation. And and one of the first things he sees is Jesus, but he's different. He's not the Jesus that was with John when he walked on earth. This is the glorified Lord. And when John sees him, remember how John responds? Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. The clear point I'm making is this. If you really did see God, if you really did behold his glory, if you encountered the glorified Christ, you would be impacted. You'd be impacted. You'd be changed. How do you know that a meteor has struck the ground? By by the huge impact crater it leaves behind. And if you encounter God's glory, you're not going to be the same. Your whole life is going to change. 
And here's the thing. We don't need a special experience of being caught up into heaven to behold God's glory. He's revealed his glory to us in Scripture. And we have a big enough, glory, or big enough picture of that glory to be impacted forever. You can and you should encounter God's glory in the Bible. And if you do, that encounter will change you. You're going to be changed. You're not going to be the same. Last week, we began a study on the glory of God. And to start, we traced the story of God's glory in the Bible, which really is the story of his presence among his people in the Bible. God's glory is his essence on display. And so oftentimes the Bible speaks of God's glory as his presence. It's just who he is. We saw the beginning of the story where God created mankind to dwell with him, to be in in fellowship with him. We saw the conflict of the story where sin came in and just tore us away from God's special presence. We saw the resolution in the story where God came down in Christ to deal with sin and remove that barrier. And then we saw the end of the story where God is going to bring all those who are in Christ to himself in heaven to be with him forever. This was a profitable study. If you weren't here last week, I would urge you to get the message. Today, we're going to take this one step further. The story of God's presence among his people, it's great, but it's not just a story. Stories come and go. You know, you walk out of the movie theater, you put that novel down, and and that's it. You go back to your life, back to reality, no big deal. But this, this story of God's glory is reality. And this story, once you understand it, should have an impact. Encountering God's glory in Scripture should change you. I told you that last week. I told you there would be an impact. This week I want to show you what that impact is, what it looks like. So whereas last week we began with the story of God's glory, today we're going to continue with the impact of God's glory. It's going to be another big picture sermon, and I want to expose you to some some real encounters people have had with God's glory from the Bible. I mean, forget, forget the bogus stories we hear today. Let's hear about people who actually did encounter God and his glory. And then let's see what happened to them. How were they impacted? How did they change just by beholding God? And how can we encounter God's glory? And how should that impact us as well? That's what we're doing today. To get us started, take your Bibles, open them to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. I told you last week that there was more to the story of Moses and God's glory that we didn't get a chance to see, and there is. Here, Moses himself has this special encounter with God's glory, and he's forever impacted. And this is something we need to see. In Exodus 33, verse 18, Moses makes this crazy, this audacious request of God. He cries out to God, God, I pray, show me your glory. Moses, what are you saying? Can Can you ask that? Are you allowed to ask that? What are you saying to God? Show me your glory. Before we look at how God responds to Moses, I want us to first just, to backtrack a little bit, how did Moses get to this point? Well, this is taking place in Exodus 33, right after the golden calf incident. Remember that? 
Here's Moses. He's up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, and he's dwelling with God. He's in the cloud of his glory. And God is giving him the law. But their time is interrupted. By what? Well, the people down below, they're already, already breaking those first two commandments. They have created this, this golden calf. And then they start worshiping it as the God who just brought them out of Egypt. Moses himself, in addition to God, is furious with the people, but Moses quickly finds himself interceding for the people because he knows God is wrathful. He says to God, please, God, I, I know the people are sinful, but, but just don't wipe us out. Don't, don't wipe them out. God tells Moses that the people, they will be judged for their sins, but he will not wipe them out. He will not wipe them off the face of the planet. But God has another test lined up for Moses. And we see this in chapter 33. In this chapter, after this happens, God tells Moses, okay, look, I'm not going to wipe out the people. I'm not going to wipe them out. And I'm going to bring them into the land, like I promised. But now, I'm not going with you. My presence is not going to be with this people anymore. Look at verse 3 of Exodus 33. He says, Moses, go up. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, the promised land. He says, for I will not go up in your midst because you are an obstinate people and I might destroy you on the way. Look down at verse 5. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the sons of Israel, you are an obstinate people. Should I go up in your midst for one moment, I would destroy you. If you understand what's going on, this is a problem. This is a problem. And do you see why? If you're here last week, you might, you might see this. Moses knew right away, this is, this is no good. This, this can't happen. And if you remember from last week, what was Israel without God's special presence among them? They were nothing. They were nothing. Moses knew God's presence among this people was essential to their existence, to their identity, to their mission. Without God, they would not be a special nation. They could not do what God had called them to do. If God was not going to go with them, remember his glory, his special presence in their midst, they might as well all just die in the wilderness because it was was pointless. It was futile if God was not going to go with them. So this is why Moses cries out to God, 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 you have to go with us. Don't take your presence away from us. He appeals to God. Of course, this is what God wanted to hear from Moses. This was the test. Moses passes the test. And God reassures him. Look at verse 14. God reassures him. He says, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. Now, you would think when Moses heard this, he would breathe a sigh of relief. Okay. God's not going to wipe his people out, and, and he's going to go with us. He's going to, he's going to stay with us. Disaster averted. But Moses is not relieved at this point. He's not relieved. At this point, he's just bewildered. He's thinking to himself, who is this God? And he's thinking to himself, do we really have his favor? Do we have God's favor? 
God just said that if his presence were to go with his people, he might destroy them. How do we know that's not going to happen later? Moses knows these people, they, they are sinful. It's only a matter of time before they do something again that's terrible. So is God going to destroy them then? Do, do we have his favor? Over and over again, this is why Moses asks, all throughout this chapter, he wants to know, God, do we have your favor? The word for favor in the Hebrew, it's a near equivalent to the word grace. He wants to know from God, are we in your good graces? Do we have your grace? And that's a valid question. You might be wondering, God, am I in your favor? And this is why. This is why Moses wants to see God's glory. Follow along. He just wants to know. He wants to know God more. God, who are you? What are you doing with us? Show me more of yourself that that I might know you. It's like he said in verse 13. Look at verse 13. He says, I pray, if I have found favor in your sight, look at this, let me know your ways. Why? That I might know you. Why? So that I may find favor in your sight. And this is why he cries out in verse 18, Lord, I pray you, show me your glory. There's no better way to know God than to see his glory. But wait a second. I thought Moses already saw God's glory. I mean, he saw the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. He was in the cloud of God's presence for 40 days. So what's he talking about? I thought he already saw God. But Moses knew, no, no. There's so much more to this God than he even knew of. And what he had seen was just, just a fraction of who God is. It's like an iceberg. The, the smallest portion sticks up out of the water, but you know that beneath the surface there's this vast mountain. And Moses understood there's infinitely more to this God. He just wanted to see more. God, can I just peek below the surface just to see more of who you are so that I can lead this people? But really, though, in this, in this request, do you know what Moses is really asking? He's really asking to see God's face. That's what he's saying. He wants to see God's face. Where do I get that from? Well, it's very obvious based on God's response to Moses. By the way, God never rebukes Moses for the request. You are allowed to ask that. God wants you to see him more and to want to know him more. But look at how God responds to Moses in verse 19. Chapter 33, verse 19. He said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But, he said, verse 20, but he said, You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Now, now watch this. This is pretty amazing. See that word for face in verse 20? The word is penna in Hebrew. It's actually the exact same word used in verse 14 for God's presence. See, in verse 14, he said, my presence will go with you. Same word. Literally, God's saying, my face will go with you. 
And you get the idea. The idea is that your face, it's like who you are. It's most representative of who you are. It's what identifies you the most. What's really remarkable about this is back in verse 11. Look back in verse 11. There is this huge play on words in this chapter on face, God's face. Uh, Look at this in verse 11. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. It's the same word. Again, same word used. So, okay, wait a second. If you put this together, it seems like Moses has already seen God's glory, and it seems like he's already seen God's face. He used to speak with God, it says, face to face. So why is he asking for more? It's, again, because Moses knew that there was more. There's more to God. There's more to his glory. There's more to his presence. There's more to his face than we know. And Moses knew he had not seen the true face, the true presence of God. It's like watching a sunrise before the sun actually pops up. It starts getting brighter and brighter. You know there's more on the way. It's nice, but there's more coming. And Moses knew that there's more to this God. He he wants to see more. God tells Moses, you can't see my face. You still can't see my true face, my true presence, but I will show you more. I'll show you more. And he does so in verse 21. Look down at verse 21. God's setting this up. He says, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about. While my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by, then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now, these are anthropomorphisms. It should be pretty clear. God is not talking about a physical hand or back or face. But God is just communicating with us in a way we can't understand. And as we turn the chapter to chapter 34, this happens. We see this happen. God sets it up, turn the chapter, and let's see it go by. Moses goes back up the mountain to meet God again, only more so He makes his way to this cleft in the rock. And now watch. Chapter 34, look at verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him, Moses, as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. This is it. This is God's greater glory Revealed. It's this is God's self-declaration. He's telling you who he is. He's showing you his glory. What does his glory consist of? It's his character. It's who he is, his name, his being. That is his glory. Who is he? He's a gracious God. Moses wanted to know, Lord, 
Do we have your favor? Are we in your, your good graces? And God tells him, well, I am a gracious God. I am gracious. I, I'm loving. I'm forgiving. But he's also just. At the same time, he's just. He's a righteous judge who will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. But this is who God is. This is his revelation, his glory revealed to Moses. Moses sees it, but he doesn't see it. He hears it, and he beholds God. He just encounters God's glory. And so we ask next, what was the impact? That's what we're after, right? The impact of God's glory. So how did this impact Moses? Moses just encountered more of the glory of God than anyone before him. So do do you think he was impacted? Surely he was. And we'll see first, verse 8 of chapter 34. Moses' first response in verse 8, after God revealed himself. Verse 8, Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. Moses responded with, with worship. And what is worship? It is ascribing glory to God. God's glory is his, his worth, his value, which is infinite. And worship is ascribing infinite worth to God. It's like the saints sing in heaven, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. This is why idolatry is so bad. You're taking that worship and you're giving it to something that is not worthy. You're ascribing praise to something other than God. But this is the impact God's glory has on you when you encounter God for who he is. It just leaves you reeling and you say, there's no one else. There's no one like this. There's no one worthy like this to receive my praise. There's no one like God to be worshipped. And that's the greatest impact God's glory has has on someone, worship. His glory, if you see it, it produces true worship. Because you realize there's no one else. There's nothing else. It's just him. And you worship. Moses worshiped. But there's another impact upon Moses. God's glory also impacted Moses' understanding. He got it. Light bulb turned on. He understood something here after he saw God's glory. Look at verse 9. Notice how his response to God changes. This is different. It's not like what he said before. Verse 9. Moses said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your own possession. What's he saying? Seeing God's glory and understanding his character, Moses Moses gets it now. He gets it. Do the people have God's favor? God told them, okay, he told them already, my presence shall go with you. But Moses was like, well, wait a second, I'm not sure that's a good thing anymore because are you just going to destroy us? Do we have your favor? Do we have your favor? Moses knows... For one thing, they shouldn't. They should not have God's favor. They don't deserve it. They are a wicked people. They should be judged. God should 
judge them. He's a just God, and they deserve judgment. But God just said, he's gracious, he's loving, he's forgiving. So which is it? Are the people going to be judged by God, or are they going to receive grace? Which one is it? Moses gets it. He gets what? It's up to God. It's up to God. Like God said earlier, I will be gracious with whom I will be gracious. It's just up to God's grace. You can't control that. So knowing that now, what does Moses do? He does the only thing he can do. He does the only thing you can do. Any of us can do. He simply appeals to God's grace. That's it. He, he pleads for God's grace. He, he asks for it. He appeals for grace. What else can you do? What else can you do before God? There's nothing else that you can do. Moses says, look, he says, God, please go with us. And then he says, even though the people are so obstinate, even though, even though we're sinful, yes, we're sinful, but still just be with us. How? By grace. Just, Lord, be gracious with us. Forgive us. Pardon us. We don't deserve it. But please be gracious with us and then stay with us. Go with us. This is so important. I hope, I hope you see this. I hope you're, you're tracking. Because the same is true for us. Do you wonder yourself individually, God, do I have your favor? Do I have your, your good grace? Without God's grace, you're lost. And there's nothing you can do to get it. You can't earn it. You certainly don't deserve it. So what can you do? There's only one thing. You can pray for his grace. You can plead for his mercy. You, you can cry out to him. The good news, like he just said, he is gracious. That's good news. He is gracious. The better news is that if you cry out to God in Christ, he will be gracious with you. God has promised, he, he promised to give his grace to those who turn to him in Christ. He will be gracious. If you go to him, he says, he will by no means cast you out. He promises to be gracious with you if you go to him through Christ in faith and obedience and love. That's, that's really good news. That, that's better news. God's gracious and he will be gracious to you in Christ. Moses understood this. He understood this appeal to God's grace, so he did it. He cried out to God. He appealed to God and God, God was gracious with him and with the people. Now briefly, let's just look at how this, this story ends. After this, Moses stays with God on the mountain for another 40 days and 40 nights. He then comes down the mountain with the two tablets of stone rebuilt, re, reproduced. But something is different about Moses. Something new when he comes down the mountain. Something unlike what happened before. What is it? Verse 29. Look at verse 29 of Exodus 34. He's coming down the mountain. It came about, verse 29, when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him, with God. Again, 
same word for face. And what's going on here? This is nothing other than a visual representation of the spiritual impact God's glory just had on Moses. Moses was not allowed to see God's true face. Not allowed. But whatever he did see was enough to impact him forever. It even even showed. And that's what happens. When we see God's presence, our presence, our face changes. Who we are. We change. And that's the whole point. We become something new. And this is what God wants. He wants us to be changed by him and impacted by him. Now, we've already seen so much just by encountering, or rather seeing Moses' encounter with God's glory. There's another one. I want to show you another encounter with God's glory in Scripture. And just take this in. We want to, again, see, we want to see the impact of God's glory upon people. Here's Moses. There's another, Elijah. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. Let's turn over a little bit to 1 Kings chapter 19. See another encounter, an impact of God's glory. Moses was right. The people were an obstinate people. And as the years went by, they sank further and further into idolatry. They got worse. They were giving glory to false gods. And by the time of the prophet Elijah, in 1 Kings chapter 19, there were seemingly no true worshipers left. None left. Elijah was the greatest Old Testament prophet. He was zealous to worship the true God. You know what he wanted? He wanted revival. He was looking for a revival. The entire nation of Israel, from the king down, had been given over to false gods. They were all idolaters, abandoning the true God. But he hoped that they would return. In 1 Kings 18, the chapter before, Elijah gets this little glimmer of hope that all is not lost. Elijah confronts King Ahab and the prophets of Baal. And through Elijah, God shows his power and he humiliates the false prophets, ending up with their slaughter. They are killed. Elijah thinks this this could be it. This could be the beginning of the revival that he was hoping for. Maybe the people, even the king, maybe they're going to turn to God now. Maybe this is it. But not so fast. This little victory did not spawn a revival. And to the contrary, when Jezebel, the wicked wife of Ahab, learned that all the prophets of Baal, her prophets, were killed, she became furious and essentially put out a bounty for the head of Elijah. She wanted him dead. And this was not what Elijah was hoping for. Nobody was turning to God, even the king. Now they wanted him dead. This was not the revival he was looking for. Nothing was happening. It was not working. So do you know what Elijah did next? He gave up. He totally gave up. He was so discouraged. Everyone, it seemed, was worshiping false gods. Even the king. There were no true worshipers left. He thought he was the last one. And so it's over. It's over. There's not going to be a revival. It's pointless. He had failed as a prophet to turn the people back to God. That was his job. He failed. So he gave up. And he ran away. Where did he go? He ran deep south into the desert wilderness, just away from it all. 
And in despair, he asked God, God, just kill me. Just take my life. But God was not finished with this discouraged prophet. He sent an angel to minister to him, to supernaturally sustain him, for Elijah had a very long journey ahead of him. Look at verse 8 of 1 Kings chapter 19. So he, Elijah, he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. You know what that is, by the way? It's Mount Sinai. Horeb, just another name for Mount Sinai. It's God's mountain. The same mountain where Moses encountered the glory of God. Look at verse 9. Then he came there to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? See, Elijah didn't belong there. He did not belong there. He belonged back in Israel, doing his job. He he was still God's prophet. Nobody told him to stop. Nobody told him to run away. He he should not have been there. But still, look look at his response, Elijah's response in verse 10. He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. True. That's true. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant. True. They've torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. True. That's all true. And he says next, and I alone am left false. And they seek my life to take it away. Now, in Elijah's mind, he truly thought he was the last one left, so I don't doubt that. But in reality, he wasn't. He could not have been, for then God's promises to Israel would have failed. He couldn't be the last one left. But he lost sight of that. He let these hard circumstances cloud his vision of God and his power. Elijah lost sight of God's glory. He lost sight of God's glory. He forgot just how big and mighty and powerful and sovereign God was that he works in ways he can't even imagine. I mean, did Elijah really think that God had forgotten Israel? Did he really think that God was not working in the nation? Yes. Yes, he forgot. He was thinking wrongly. But God is gracious with Elijah's weakness here, and God knows what the weary prophet really needs in order to get back to his mission. He needs to encounter God. And his glory. Elijah doesn't ask for it. Moses asks to see God's glory. Elijah doesn't, but God knows what he needs. And God is going to show himself to Elijah. Look now in verse 11 of chapter 19. So he said, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking it in pieces, the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out, stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? 
This scene is very reminiscent of Moses' encounter with God's glory. You see all these same elements, these hurricane-force winds, that the earth is just shattering beneath your feet, this huge fire consuming the mountain. These were incredible displays of God's power. They would make any person's heart melt in fear. It's God's introduction. This is God's introduction. It's like, it's like in a boxing match. Match. Right before the prize fighter comes out, what do they do? They, they blare his music, his special music. And you know, you hear the music, he's on his way. You know he's coming, he's near. This is God's special music. This is God's intro. When you see this, you know, here comes God. Just like he did when he visited Israel on Mount Sinai. Same thing. You knew, here, here comes God. This time, though, something different. This time it's different. Because this time, after the wind and the quaking and the fire, God does not show up. God doesn't come. That, that was his intro, but where's his presence? He's not there. Well, what does Elijah hear? Here's nothing. Silence. God's not there. But then in the calm after the storm, after all the big stuff is gone, in that calm after the storm, there, there's a sound of a gentle blowing. A sound otherwise you'd never notice. And when Elijah heard this gentle blowing, somehow he knew God's here. He covers his face lest he see something he shouldn't. He goes to the entrance of this cave. Now, our text doesn't say this, but I would bet my bottom dollar that this cave is the exact same cleft in the rock that Moses encountered God's glory from. I'd bet it's the exact same spot where Moses met God on the mountain. And here, like Elijah, Moses, or rather, here, Elijah, like Moses, doesn't see something, he hears something. God speaks to him and he says, What are you doing here, Elijah? And what's God asking here? What is God really asking or teaching here? Elijah, why have you given up? Why are you so discouraged? Have you forgotten my glory? Have you forgotten who I am, my power? Do you think I have limits? See, Elijah was looking for God to do something big in Israel. He wanted that big revival, that big event. And when that big event never came, Elijah thought God wasn't working, that God had given up. But God was still working. Sometimes God works in loud ways. The earthquake, the wind, the fire. Sometimes, though, God works in quiet ways, the gentle blowing. And although you may not be able to always perceive God's workings, do not doubt him because he's there. He's working. Elijah was wrong to give up just because God wasn't doing something loud in Israel. And his problem came from a limited view of God's glory, God's majesty. He put God in a box and he said, God, if you don't do this, if you don't work here, if you don't change that, it it can't happen. I don't see how this can happen. So you must have given up. I give up. But Elijah needed to see again and be reminded, this, this is the God of glory. He doesn't have limits. He does not have limits. Do you think of him like a man? He works in ways, oftentimes, you cannot even see or understand or perceive. But he's working. Now we ask the question, what was the impact? Again, that's what we're after. What was the impact of this encounter on Elijah? And for Elijah, the impact was he went back to work. 
He was encouraged, and he got back to work. He went back to serving God, now with this renewed passion. God told him, okay, go back to Israel. Anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Anoint Jehu, king over Israel. Anoint Elisha, prophet in your place. The point is, his work was not done. He had more work to do as God's prophet. But now he was ready to truly serve the Lord. He was ready to get back to work, to service, to do what God asked him to do. Elijah came to know God and his glory better that day. He was impacted. He could trust God to work, even when the light grows dim, because God doesn't have limits. And he went back to doing what God wants all of us to do, just to faithfully serve him, to keep going. This story ends with God encouraging Elijah, down in verse 18. He says, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees who have not bowed to Baal. He tells Elijah, look, I know you think you're alone. You're not alone. I've saved 7,000. You're not alone. Get back to work. Keep working. And Elijah goes back. He returns, even though they're still seeking his life. They still want to kill him. But now he goes back, and he fulfills his ministry. As this story would have it, though, Israel, they never would experience that revival. Never came. The revival they hoped for never came. And they sunk further and further into idolatry until, as we learned last time, God's glory truly did depart from Israel. Remember that? The glory left. Left the temple, left their presence. The people were judged and God's glory removed. But God's glory would return to the people. His presence would come back to be with his people. And and we ruined the punchline last week. God's glory returned in Jesus. God came back in Christ. And now in Jesus, the glory of God dwells with his people personally and powerfully. In Christ, now we encounter the glory of God. Now, if you want to know God, know Jesus. Know Jesus. Jesus, when he came the first time, his glory was veiled. The radiance, the fullness of it was held back. Otherwise, no one could approach him. But I told you that there was one time. There was one time when that veil was just ever so slightly lifted up and we got a peek into his true nature, his true glory. And I told you we would look at it this week. So turn for our last encounter with the glory of God to Matthew 17. Matthew chapter 17. That one time when the veil was lifted and the glory of God in Christ shone forth a little bit more. Matthew chapter 17, a third, a third encounter now with the glory of God. Matthew 17, look at verse 1. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. So what's happened here? Jesus is being what's called transfigured. And what does that mean? It means he's showing off part of his true self. He's giving them a glimpse of his true glory in visible form. There is this this full glory to God that we can't even conceive of and we can never see. We can never see. 
Paul says of God that he dwells in unapproachable light. It's, it's like our sun. Imagine getting on a spaceship and traveling to the sun. It's unapproachable. You couldn't even get close. The heat, the, the radiance of the sun would literally incinerate you before you got anywhere close to the surface. It's unapproachable. God is unapproachable. He has this glory that you can never see. It's just not possible. But he gives us what we can handle. He reveals enough of himself for us to be impacted. And here in Christ, he's letting the disciples stare into the sun just for a little bit. Just peek into the sun that they might know him and his glory better. Look what happens next in verse 3. After this happens, he's transfigured. And look who shows up. Verse 3, and behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him, Jesus. What do you know? Of all the people God could have used here, why do you think he chose Moses and Elijah to show up? There's several reasons. First, these are the only two men who encountered the glory of God in that personal, special way on the mountain in the Old Testament. But they were never able to see God's face until now. Until now. Here in the transfiguration where the glory of God in Christ was shown, I believe that God was letting Moses and Elijah see his face more than ever before. What they always wanted face-to-face with Christ in glory. Jesus is God's glory come down. And if you've seen him, what did Jesus say? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. They were staring into the Son, to his face. But there's another reason why these two showed up. It's hinted at in verse 5. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Get this. Moses and Elijah, they became the two most revered figures in the Old Testament by the Jews. Moses representing the law. Elijah representing the prophets. That's the whole Old Testament right there. It's almost like some of the Jews gave more glory to Moses and to Elijah than to God. But God was greater than Moses and Elijah And so is Jesus. And this is what God is saying here. Peter, if you remember, he wants to set up three booths. One for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. What that means is he's pretty much putting them on the same level as if they're equals. But they are not equal. They are not on equal footing. For Christ is the God of glory. And so God the Father shows up again in a cloud on the mountain He speaks with a thundering voice. This is my son. Listen to him. Look, you have the law. You have the prophets. You've got Moses. You've got Elijah. Something greater is here. Now you have Jesus. Listen to him. He is greater. He is God's glory. This is the message God is sending. Listen to him now. Verse 6. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up, do not be afraid. 
And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. And talk about impact. Here, the three, Peter, James, and John, were impacted by this third encounter with God's glory revealed in Christ. How were they impacted? First, they were terrified. That's how they were impacted. They were, they were scared. They realized, like the Israelites, they did not belong on that mountain. They did not, that was holy ground. They were not holy. They did not belong there. And so they were terrified by God's glory. God's glory is terrifying. It's scary. It's dangerous. It's bad for your health because you don't belong. And this is the true terror of hell. Some people think hell is the absence of God. It is so much worse than that. It is the presence of God's glory in his wrath revealed forever, and there's no escape. That's far more terrifying. But thankfully, there's another impact of God's glory here. There's comfort in Christ. There's comfort in Christ. God's glory is terrifying. But what did Jesus say? He said, do not be afraid. There's nothing to fear. And this now is the true bliss of heaven. It's getting to be with God's glory and not being afraid. You don't have to be afraid because you belong there. Christ has made you to stand there in his presence by grace. And now God's glory is there to bless you, not to judge you. That is beyond what we can imagine. In Jesus, we know God. We see his glory And as you encounter Jesus through the scriptures, as you stare into the sun by faith and go to him, then you too will be impacted by his glory. You you will change still. Nobody encounters God's glory and walks away unchanged. It's not possible. And if you truly gaze at the sun and if you cry out to him, he will change you. He will make you born again. And talk about impact. You have a new life, new purpose, new destiny. For that to happen, it's so essential that you know who the real Jesus is, who he really is, and that you believe in the real Jesus. Will will the real Jesus please stand up? He's not merely a man or a prophet or a good teacher. He's not just a historical figure. He's God, the Son, the Savior, the Christ. Think about this. Just a few days before this happened, Jesus had a discussion. And I want you to look at that. It's just chapter 16. It's right there on the same page. Look at back at chapter 16 and verse 13. Who is Jesus? He asked that question. Chapter 16 of Matthew, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? Who do they think I am? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Basically, a prophet. They thought he was was a prophet. Verse 15, but he said to them, who do you say that I am? What do you guys think? You're my disciples. Who do you think I am? Simon Peter answered, you, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
Do you see this? Do you believe this? God has revealed to you through Scripture, by faith, the same thing. So do you confess Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God? Do you know, do you believe in the real Jesus? And have you been impacted by him? What does that impact look like? Look at verse 24 of Matthew 16. What he says to them later. Talk about impact. This is what Jesus will do to you. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You give him your entire life. That's an impact. Your your whole life. Gone. Dead. New life. When you follow Jesus, you give him your life, your life changes. In fact, it already has been changed when he makes you new. But now you follow. Like Moses, you worship. Like Elijah, you serve. Like the disciples, you fear. But then you're comforted eternally by Christ. Everybody in the end will be impacted by God's glory. Do you know that? Everybody is going to be impacted by God's glory, some for the better, some for the worse. But you're all going to encounter it, every person, and will be impacted. For some who reject Christ, they will be judged. They will encounter him in glory, sadly in judgment. For he will return a second time with that glory no longer veiled to judge. In fact, Look what he says right in the next verse, verse 27, as he finishes this discussion. Verse 27 in Matthew chapter 16. He says, For the Son of Man is going to come, in what? In the glory of his Father with the angels, and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you that there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Right after this happens the transfiguration. And what does that tell us? That tells us that the same terrifying, glorified Jesus that appeared to the disciples, that's the Jesus that will return to judge in glory. No escape. Repay you according to your deeds. That's That's not a good outfit for us because none of us have righteous deeds. Some will encounter the the glory of God in a terrifying way when he comes to judge. But you can't escape. Though you don't deserve it, by grace, you can't escape and and actually be blessed by him. Those who receive Christ, those who see him as the true glory of God and believe in him and worship. Have you accepted that free offer of eternal life that he gives? Beholding him in his glory as God the Son in Christ. Have you been impacted by God's glory in Christ for the better? Last week we saw the story of God's glory. That's what it's all about. That's what everything is about. You know that? It's it's all about God's glory. That's what life is about. Today we've seen the impact of God's glory. And when you come to behold God for who he is, you just see him, you see his glory changes you and impacts you. Next week, we're coming back for one more study, the pursuit of God's glory. You see, once you, once you see the story, you see what it's about, once you're impacted by it, you come to new life, now you're finally able and ready to do something we call live for the glory of God. What does that mean? 
What does that even mean? What does that look like? Well, we'll find out with a cliffhanger. You've got to come back next week. The pursuit of God's glory. For now, let's just dwell on God. Let's be encountered by his glory in scripture and be impacted and be changed. Father of glory, we, we, ha- we pray before you now and lift you up in glory. Indeed, you are a worthy God. We confess, like the saints in heaven, that there's no one else, there's none other to receive glory and honor and praise. You are God alone. Lord, I pray for all of us on behalf of this church. Show us your glory. Show us your, your face, yourself. Help us to encounter you more in Scripture where you already have revealed your glory to us. We just need to go there and see you and behold and then be changed. Change us. We need to be changed to be made more like you. We pray for your grace to do so. Bless us as we seek your face and help us to then live accordingly as we are changed by you. We love you, Lord, and we are so thankful for the grace we have in Christ. It's why we're here. We give you our lives and we do follow you. And bless this church as we seek to know and worship you more. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.